in the classic book, Lord of the Flies, which maybe some of you read uh, in middle school or high school or something growing up, a plane full of uh, British uh, prep school boys crashes in the ocean, and they all somehow miraculously wash up safe and sound on an island. But also miraculously, none of the chaperones end up on the island. So I don't know, you have like 50 or 100 or something uh, prep school boys that are like with none of them older than uh, you know, 12 or 13, and they're all on this island with no chaperones. They got to figure out like what to do, like how to how to function, and um, and so there's some debate on how they're gonna how they're going to uh, elect a leader. But Ralph was the oldest and the tallest and the most handsome, uh, so he gets elected leader. Uh, but then you also have Piggy, who's called Piggy because he looks like a pig, and he's got thick glasses, and nobody likes him, but he's very smart and shrewd. And the boys elect Ralph a leader. Uh, and he breaks them into teams. You guys go hunt for food. You guys keep a fire going so that if any planes or ships come by, they'll be able to see us and, and rescue us. Uh, but then conflict ensues. The hunters are like, we don't want to traipse through the jungle. It's hot. We're going to go swimming. And then everybody goes hungry. And then the, fires, the fire keepers, they neglect their duties. And a plane goes by and they don't get rescued because they didn't, they didn't uh, do what they were supposed to. And uh, and so Ralph starts punishing people or, you know, reprimanding people with his authority. And they're like, wait a minute, who put you in charge? Who, who gave you the authority? What, we want someone else to be, a, be in the authority. And then you, you, I won't recap the whole story, but chaos ensues. You have different parties wanting, wanting power. You get some bullies that invent this myth that there's monsters out there. And they use that to fearmonger people into obeying them. And it eventually leads to murder and division and chaos. These, like, kind, normal British prep school boys are now, don't resemble that at all. They, they are like savages killing for food and for survival. It's definitely a story about sin. Um, it's more than just the, the school boys, which is why you read it in school. But it's, I think it shows us what happens when humans are left on their own, on their own without helpful authority structures. There's a very countercultural. Uh, truth that the Bible shows us is that authority is good, that humans must have authority to thrive. But of course, we have to be reasonable, like good authority is good, but bad authority, you know, is bad. It's not just necessarily that all authority is good and lots of pain and oppression has happened at the hands of authority figures throughout human history and maybe even in, in your own life. But it's super important that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater just because we might have had a bad experience with authority. Uh, we, we don't swear it off. You know, if you have a, a bad meal, you don't like give up, you know, eating because it's necessary for necessary for life. Same is true with authority. So we have to and we, we can also acknowledge that to whatever degree you're comfortable uh, with it, authority is, is scary. And on some level, we none of us really like it universally humans we want to do what is right in our own eyes like that's part of our sin nature like the the original sin uh, adam and eve in the garden was they were under god's authority and they said no we want to do it our way we want to eat this fruit uh that that lack of wanting to not have no one over top of them no one limit them to do what seems right that's called sin or one of the ways you could define sin and then in our culture we've kind of even doubled down on that and made this radical individualism like a virtue you know like one of the slogans of our country is don't tread on me so we have a lot stacked against us when it comes to to authority or sin or culture all that stuff but again according to the timeless perfect word of god authority is good and it's something that humans need
And then as Jeff shared, when we get to our current state as a church and where we are, we're acknowledging that when it comes to authority, we, we as a church historically have not been uh, aligned with, with how we see this pointed out in scripture, which is why we're voting on the new constitution and other documents today. Uh, and so just leading up to that vote, I wanted to take a minute and just walk through scripture, uh, looking at this question, who's in charge? When it comes to the church, who's in charge here? Because when a church does not have a biblical answer to that question, then I think it will be unhealthy and, and maybe even die. You know, all these questions, like is the church just like a stone-cold democracy where just the majority rules? Uh, is it the person who gives the most money that has the most say? Is it the most loud, complaining one that gets their way? Uh, you know, is it the pastor alone? Is it the deacons? You know, how are decision made? All these things are very crucial questions, and if we're off on, on those questions, then things will not go well. So we're gonna, just going to dive in. We're going to kind of like, uh, go downward starting at the top of the authority structure and, and move downward uh, starting in Romans uh, Romans chapter 11 who's in charge the answer most of the time in church is God or Jesus right now we're starting with God uh, Romans uh, chapter 11 starting here in Paul's little doxology at the tail end of a bunch of, a bunch of theology that he just got done unpacking he says in verse 33, this is page 1763 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along. I'd like to point out before we read it, is that this is worship. This is Paul worshiping. He's saying truths, he's saying doctrinal or theological truths, but they're causing him to worship. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The key to the good life as created beings is for us to understand that we're living in a universe sustained by our all-powerful God. To know that he is God and that we are not. And if you look at some of the words here, it talks about how his judgments are unsearchable. His ways are like beyond tracing out, beyond understanding. They don't make sense to us sometimes, which is just kind of obvious because it'd be like trying to, you know, explain pancakes to an ant or quantum physics to a baby or something like that. Like it's just, there's just like a, a break in like order of intelligence, you know, between, between those, two, th those two creatures. So God is just above and beyond us. His ways are, are unsearchable, inscrutable, not, not up to us to critique. We can question them, we can struggle with them, uh, but ultimately we have to acknowledge that he is in charge. We know that God exists in Trinity, which means that there is one God and he's made up of three distinct persons. And if that blows your mind, because those are contradictory statements, that's part of his like above and beyondness that we just kind of accept in faith based on the teachings of scripture as part of being a, being a Christian, or an Orthodox one at least. We have God the Father, we have a Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, they're all equally God, but they're distinct in personhood and in function. And so within the Trinity, within this flowing community of love of the Trinity, there are specific authorities given, or kind of a delegation of specific authorities. Uh, flip over with me to Colossians 1. We continue to answer this question, who's in charge of the church? 
uh, starts with God, you know, fully and holistically. And then as we get more specific, it moves down to Jesus as a member of the Trinity. Look with me at Colossians 1, verse 15. This is page 1832 in the Pew Bible. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Hallelujah. Do I, I mean, do I even need to explain that one, you know? It's like, Jesus is it. He's supreme, and he's the head. Like, I'm just repeating the passage. Jesus is fully God, and he's the head of the church. When I was uh, offered the job here at First Baptist four years ago, they offered me uh, the job of senior pastor. And uh, I, I, I kind of made it a little bit awkward, but I asked, hey, could my title actually be lead pastor? And it's because of passages like this. Uh, that would seem to say that like Jesus is the senior pastor. Jesus is the, the head of his church. And it might just be semantics or whatever. Um, but we see that Jesus is, is the senior. He's the top. He's the, he's, he's the head. He runs everything. And praise God for that. Because in Lord of the Flies, in that story we talked about, there are lots of boys who are dead because of bad authority or unclear authority. There's just this incredible loss of innocence as the evil in the human heart uh, comes out without proper authority or good authority. And we as the church, praise God, we have the only perfect authority. The only perfect human authority is our King Jesus, who is fully human, fully God, made without sin, so we can submit to his authority with joy and with freedom, knowing that he is intrinsically good. We could then ask the question, if he is the head and he has all the authority, how does he lead? How does he lead his church. We'll flip over to uh, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, a couple pages to the left. This is a passage that we normally go to. It's our go-to passage for looking at marriage, but there's some intrinsic Christology uh, nestled in this, in this passage. This is page 1823 in the Pew Bible, uh, starting in verse 25. How does, how does Jesus lead his church? How does Jesus exercise his authority over his church? It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. We see here is that Jesus, in his kingship, in his, all, all his authority, is a tender, loving husband. One of the reasons why marriage is such a big deal is because, not in and of itself, but because it's a shadow of the reality. It points to the, it points to the reality that Jesus loves his bride, the church. He gave himself up for her. He died for her. He loves her in his imperfect state. Praise God for that. Can we just like soak in that for a minute? That like right now in our smallness and our scruffiness and our uncertainty that God 
uh, that Jesus loves First Baptist Church. He died for First Baptist Church. But he doesn't leave, leave her in her imperfections. It says he sanctifies her, he cleanses her, washing of the water with the word. He makes the church beautiful through the cleansing water of the word of God. This is just an incredibly tender, beautiful image of a, of a faithful, loving husband taking a broken, unfaithful, wounded, filthy, self-destructed woman and marrying her and washing her and healing her so that she might be without blemish. This is just glorious grace. And this is what Jesus is doing with his universal church. And it's what he can do here, what we're praying he will do here uh, in First Baptist as we submit to his leadership, his loving, tender leadership. This passage kind of shows us the next answer to the question, who's in charge? Uh, it's the Bible. Jesus washes his bride, the church, with the cleansing water of the word. The word of God has power and authority to cleanse and heal the church. Jesus will present the church as uh, pure and blameless without blemish, as holy. And the, one of the ways, the primary way he does that is through the word. The washing and the healing of the, of the water of the word comes when we read it and when we know it and we let it change us. We don't use it for our ends, but we, we conform to it. We say okay to what it says. And so my hope, and I see God doing this in, in a lot of ways, is that as a church we just be fanatical, just like completely stuck on delighting in the, the word of God. We have our uh, vice president of scripture reading, Zach Carter, who's led us in that corporately. And uh, I hope we continue to do that. That's just a defining quality is that it's not like varsity Christians that read their Bible regularly, but it's just all of us that we, we study it, we wrestle with it, we ask hard questions, we talk about it together, uh, we, we evaluate different interpretations, we memorize it, we meditate on it, we let it wash us clean. There's a psalm that talks about how the, the, the word of God is like honey to my lips. It's like so sweet or it's like more valuable than precious, precious, uh, precious gold. The author of Hebrews describes the effect of the word of God on us like this in Hebrews 4.12. You don't have to turn there. It says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's not just a dry, dead, old book that has the authority like it's, you know, like a, like a car manual or, I don't know, a, a, a law school textbook that's just like, this is the facts. These are the cases. But instead, it's living and active because the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is also involved in this authority uh, process because it inspired the word and then it empowers the word to pierce us and to, to get down to the, to the, the nitty gritty of our lives in the, in the most intimate way. The Bible is this powerful, living, beautiful authority that can point us to God, show us ourselves. It shows us God as he is and it shows us ourselves as we are more than any other source that we have and I think uh, Lord willing I think we're largely past this season but there was a season in church uh, Jeff can attest to this where we heard the phrase I know the Bible says that but dot 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 way too often I mean once is too often but can you just see the horror of that statement that the immortal almighty God of the universe gave us his word and then you offer your own contrasting opinion 
There's a proverb that says, there's a way that seems right to God, uh, but in the end, or there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end will lead to death. We face uncertainty as we look to the future of the, as the, future of the church, uh, but if we want some certainty, we will certainly die as a church if we're not willing to submit to God's word and, and, and what, what he says for us. And that's not to say that uh, you know, we can strong arm each other, like there's space for debate, there's space where there's just gray areas, you know, we can have robust discussion about what the word says. Um, that's like literally one of my favorite things in life and about my job is to have people have questions about the word and wrestle with them uh, together. But if all we're talking about is an opinion, my opinion or your opinion, my preference or your preference, then you know, we want to hear each other. We want to make sure we're, you know, we're understood and stuff. But how, how, how could any of us like, submit to opinions over the word of God? How could we claim to be faithful or to love God more than everything else with all that we have if we just you know, wiggle and twist to try to make everybody happy or to keep the peace? And that brings us to our last point on this question of authority. One of the incredible realities of our God is that he's in the business of using weak, imperfect, limited humans to achieve his purposes. From the beginning of the Bible, he's using imperfect goofballs to tell his glorious meta-narrative. At one point, he even uses Satan like, to, to achieve his purposes. We see that in the government, that there's no authority except that's, that, that what has been given by God. We see that in families, that God uh, puts the husband to lead uh, and, and to uh, be the head of the household. We see that in the church, that he gives authority and responsibilities uh, to, to pastor elders. Which finally brings us to our uh, sermon text that we read. Flip with me over to First Peter. 1 Peter 5, 1892, in the Pew Bible. Peter writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, Serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God's design for his church is to raise up pastor elders, and we'll see in a minute that those, those words are interchangeable, to oversee the church or to shepherd the church as under-shepherds. I love this passage because it shows both the reality that Jesus is the chief shepherd. I love that language. The chief shepherd is Jesus, but then the human, finite men, are called to be shepherds under Jesus. Just one of the inscrutable, unsearchable judgments of God is that he's ordained to have human under-shepherds overseeing and leading the local congregation, the local flocks of his universal church. That God has ordained to have human under-shepherds overseeing and caring for the local flocks of his universal church. 
this first Peter passage we just read makes it clear that there is one chief shepherd who has all the authority, that human pastors don't have any authority in and of themselves. Their, their, their authority is just given to them by God through his word on behalf of the chief shepherd. And that's where the humility comes in. We, we, we serve or we have authority as pastor elders only as an extension, only as an emissary or a representative of the chief shepherd and the word of God. We talk a lot about pastor eldership uh, this morning, but I just want to talk about one specific aspect of it. Uh, you'll notice in your bulletin, I think it made it in there, that the S in pastors is underlined and bold and italicized or whatever. Uh, that's on purpose, because the main takeaway that I have for us this morning is that the Bible teaches that the church is to be led by a plurality of called, qualified men known as pastor elders. Plurality just means multiple, a, a group. Believe it or not, I think it's actually hugely important to consider how a church is led, who's in charge, and how decisions are made. But I, for now, I just want us to look on this one aspect of church authority, which is a plurality of pastor elders. Uh, let's look at our titles here. I, I talked about how they're interchangeable. Just back to our sermon text here, you see, you see all of these titles at work, even just in these five, you, these five verses, and actually more titles. Um, First, you see uh, the word elder. Peter calls himself an elder, and he appeals to fellow elders. Uh, and then you see, um, see him ad admonish them to be shepherds of God's flock. The word uh, shepherd in Greek and in Spanish, fun fact trivia, is uh, pastor or pastor, uh, if you're speaking Spanish. Uh, and so the shepherd-pastor aspect uh, is the same as what he's telling elders to be pastors. He's telling elders to, to shepherd people. And then uh, down in, um, yeah, also in verse 2, serving as overseers, uh, which, uh, as Jeff's old school Bible said, bishops, <laughs> uh, if you will, which just basically means like oversight, uh, exercising oversight, seeing the, seeing the big picture and leading like that. And so all these words are the same office that we, we believe here at First Baptist Church. Uh, pastor, elder, bishop, presbyter, Overseer, all you know, all these things are kind of the same, the same uh, office. In our current uh, draft of our constitution that we're going to vote on later, we've uh, just for the sake of clarity, but also not to be crazy, we've just hyphenated two of them, like calling the office pastor elder. We're not calling it pastor elder bishop overseer, you know, whatever presbyter. Um, but this idea is just you know, like in my home, you know, I am a husband to Camille, I am a father to Johnny and Ruby, I am the head of household according to. The, the IRS is kind of like this, this office, this one role in the church has these, these kind of different functions. And when we study God's word to see what it says about this office of pastor elder, we see that it almost exclusively refers to them in a plurality, in multiples, in plural, that there's more than one. In Acts uh, 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas, they're planting churches, and it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We even see Paul saying crazy things like, there's no more work for me to be done in this entire region. And a lot of Bible scholars say that's because he raised up elders in every single city, that there's a church led by a plurality of elders in every city in this region. And so he considered that place reached because now there's a church and a healthy governance there to, to make disciples and reach the lost. Or as Jeff read, Titus is sent to a region 
uh, that it, it looks like at one point had churches in it, uh, that Paul maybe had planted some. Uh, and he writes in Titus 1.5, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. There's a bunch of texts that we could look at, but biblical scholar Bruce Stabbert summarizes the conclusions like this. It is concluded after examining all the passages which mention local church leadership on the pastoral level that the New Testament presents a united teaching on this subject and that it is clear on the side of plurality. Of the 18 passages which speak of church leadership, 15 of them are plural. Only three passages talk about church leadership in singular terms and in each passage, the singular may be seen as fully compatible with plurality. In all these passages, there is not one passage which describes a church being governed by one pastor. I'll praise God that his word's clear, that we don't need to like get the best brains together and try to figure out, like, hey, how do we structure the authority of the church? Now, historically, we've been in just kind of the classic traditional Baptist model of authority, where there's a senior pastor and then a board of deacons and then a bunch of committees. And Jeff shared kind of how that's played out for him uh, as a deacon. Uh, let's consider some of the incredible benefits that come from God, what, we, what we see as God's design of a plurality of pastor elders. The first thing we see is that it balances out our weaknesses. Like, you know, I haven't been here long, but I've been here plenty long enough uh, to know, for you guys to know that I have flaws and weaknesses. If we believe what we believe about humans, which is that we're flawed then how in the world could we expect one human to lead the church in this office? It takes a team, a group of biblically qualified men so they can balance each other out. So if the, the checks and balance aspect of having flawed humans lead a local body is one benefit, the second advantage is, is that we have a diversity of gifts within the plurality of pastor elders. Maybe one elder is a gifted teacher and very smart, but you know, just doesn't have a lot of ability to connect with people. And he's working on it, but he's just kind of awkward and bookish. But there's another elder who's just really bent on mission. Like he just loves connecting with people and building relationships with lost people. And maybe there's another elder who just like, has a huge heart and incredibly compassion and will listen and help people that are struggling. Uh, but, you know, struggles to actually call sin, sin, and call people to repent. And so he can bring his big heart to the table and probably work on the, the teacher guy. Uh, but then the teacher guy can say, like, hey, that person's sinning. We need to stop, you know, helping them or whatever. Because what you see in churches like ours is that when you have one pastor, whatever pastor you have, he's going to have his specific skill sets. You know, the way God's gifted him, his natural personality and bents, is that the church will want not that. <laughs> they'll, they'll want the opposite. So if you get, you get a real uh, brainiac teacher who just kind of is in his office and then he's in the pulpit and that's all you see him, you know, he'll be really gifted maybe in that function, but then they're like, we need someone who will really love us. So we really spend time with us. And so then you get a, just a teddy bear pastor who just kind of like wings his sermons on Sunday mornings and never says no to anybody, you know, or something. And then you're like, no, we need a visionary leader. We need someone who will take us to, you know, for the mission and forward, and then you get a you get a leader pastor in there uh, who actually wants to make changes and is like saying hard things or or whatever, and you're like whoa 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 we we want the cuddly guy back, you know, like, and and so you have churches that just kind of flip flop, you know, in this church you know I think the average is like three or three and a half years that a pastor has stayed here because uh, like any pastor is just gonna is gonna have gonna have his strengths and weaknesses, and and so there's incredible this is a third benefit is that there's incredible stability to a local congregation when you have a plurality of elders. Like even if there's like a lead paid teaching pastor, 
who might come and go. If you have, you know, a group of men uh, who are leading the church at the same level of authority, the same level of gifted or qualifications uh, as, as the paid guy, then, then the church can stay way more stable and not flip-flop back and forth. My irrefutable argument for why we as a church need a plurality of pastor elders is my own immense inadequacy and weaknesses. So for the health of our church, what would it look like for us to obey the word of God? Follow our chief shepherd to let the water uh, be washed in the water of the word. Well, the short answer is <laughs> members come to our member meeting and we can vote on this new constitution. Uh, this is something I said actually in my interview four years ago, is that I have a convictions of plurality of pastor elders and would hope to move in that direction. And we started talking about this publicly like two years ago. So this, this the, today, as small and scruffy as it is, kind of represents like years of work and hopes and dreams and praying of me and some of the other leaders. But let's just go through a couple frequently asked questions kind of about this pastor elder idea. The first question is, are all pastor elders full-time staff of the church? Like, how are we going to get more pastor elders? We can't, we can't afford to pay them. Well, the short answer is no. That there might be one paid pastor elder, multiple paid pastor elders, or no paid pastor elders. Uh, the paying question uh, is, is not necessarily applicable in this context. Uh, the church, based on needs and resources, can figure out who to pay and how much. Uh, but it's... Uh, but it's very common for unpaid elders and lay, lay pastor elders to hold just the same authority as the paid guy, as the full-time person. They just happen to make their living somewhere else. They feel called to be a pastor elder. It's their mission in life. It's how they serve the church. They just don't happen to get paid. Where do deacons fit in? Well, uh, that's a whole other sermon, but deacons are, are another office of the church. If you have the pastor elder office of the church given to us by scripture, deacons are another office. And the word in Greek literally means servant, as Jeff shared earlier. And uh, again, try not to preach a whole other sermon, but you could summarize it like this. If pastor elders serve by leading, deacons lead by serving. If you can kind of wrap, wrap your heads around that. If pastor elders serve by leading the church, the deacons lead by serving. So they're going to be maybe the more task-oriented people, the people with actual skills with their hands, unlike me, uh, who can handle things or organize things or you know, put on potlucks or, or, or whatever, can do all, all kinds of the practical, practical needs. They're not burdened with the thoughts of, like, making o oversight decisions or caring for people's souls explicitly like pastor elders are, and they're able to just act, just serve and do it. Next question, who gets to be elders? Who gets to be pastor elders? Uh, well, afterwards, we'll put our names in a bucket, and we'll just pick some out, and whoever, no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. The Bible is also very clear and kind of terrifying on what the, what the qualifications are for pastor elders. And this, this could be a whole sermon series, but I just want to read um, Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Uh, I invite you to just close your eyes and just like picture people like this, like picture a group of, group of men uh, that, that would have these qualities. Paul writes to another young pastor trying to raise up elders, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must, not, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So we see here that it's men who desire to be pastor elders. Like, we're not looking for, like, shoulder shrugging, like, I guess I'll be a pastor elder or whatever if you need it. We're not trying to fill holes just for the sake of filling holes. Uh, The scripture holds it to a very high standard. What we see is a picture of pace setters, that uh, the pastor elders, a team of pastor elders, are meant to set the tone, to, to join with Paul in saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate my example as I try to imitate Christ's example. And so what would that look like here? First, it means if you feel called or desired to be a pastor elder, uh, that's great. You don't have to be shy about that or like downplay it or whatever. You're like, I, I want it. I, I feel a desire to do that. And then my hope is that we can kind of uh, roll out, at, Lord willing, we pass this new constitution like a a six-month to a year-long kind of elder assessment process, uh, assessing the character and the giftings and abilities of, of people who desire that. Uh, and then there's a process all articulated in the new Constitution draft that talks about presenting them before the congregation uh, to ask questions. And if there's any kind of like not above reproachness that comes up, we can talk about that. And then ultimately the church uh, installs them uh, by a vote uh, to, be, to be the pastor elders. The sermon really is its own application. The point is the authority of God, and we can follow that all the way down into the mind-blowing reality that he takes finite humans to lead his church. And it's different, or if it seems scary, or not just not believable that in our kind of scruffy time as a church with the uncertainty that something as kind of boring as a constitution or church governance could cause revitalization, but the ways of God are not the ways of man. His judgments are inscrutable, and so we simply trust and obey because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Let me pray.